Hi, this is Brittany from Artsy Fartsy Gals, and I'm here with Jamie. We're going to do our fun little art history uh, podcast. Um, Jamie's recording outside, so that's why you might hear birdies in the background. And I'm recording in the corner of my room next to my record player. You have a bee friend. Yeah. <laughs> so Jamie's going to start us off, and then we'll, and then I'll go and talk about some facts and we'll just throw it back and forth so but it should be fun so go ahead jamie all right so i chose um for our art history episode i really love monet so i chose to talk about monet and his history um just kind of the important stuff uh he's he's interesting and his stories really it's something that if you learn about it, you'll understand why his art is the way that it is. So I'm just gonna get right into it. Um, Monet is known as the father of Impressionism. We, we say this because he started, he didn't start the Impressionism movement, but um, he was always fighting for it to happen. When he started at the Academy, he decided, like, he was learning how to paint, and they said that they didn't like the way he painted, so he didn't really get, um, at the time they were called salon shows, which was the way that the galleries were set up, and so he didn't get salon shows because they didn't like the way that he painted, they felt like it was too different, and it wasn't something that people were really going to be interested in, and so as he's going through school, he starts to realize that he isn't going to try and paint differently than he does, and that he really wants to be an Impressionist. I mean, this is a idea that doesn't exist yet when he starts painting, but Impressionism, they paint with light and color, and they kind of ignore the realism of things. So they paint exactly how they feel that they are seeing. And um, a lot of times they don't use colors like black, and sometimes they don't even use white. And they'll try to paint just how they feel the color and the movement and the light works in their paintings. Another part of the Impressionist movement was they weren't painting these really, like, staged paintings. So a lot of the earlier paintings were very staged still lifes or um, very pretty scenery that just really wasn't a thing at the time that Impressionism started. So they started to paint what they saw every day. And that's why you see a lot of paintings of bridges and flowers and things like that that just generally weren't painted before this time. And if they were painted, it was kind of strange to see them painted. So that's how he starts off as the father of Impressionism, because he really makes a career out of doing this. Um, so the first painting to, or not the first painting, but the painting that names the Impressionist movement is Impression Sunrise. It's a very pretty, very um, colorful painting, and it's also a little bit hard to read. Um, because it's very strokey and it doesn't have a very defined image. So 
that's kind of what started off the Impressionist movement, and that's why he is known as the father of Impressionism. And I think what's really interesting about Monet is that he fought his whole life to paint. He was always so focused on um, just he wanted to be an artist, and he was going to be an artist, and he was going to make it work no matter what. So his father originally wanted him to take over the grocery store business that his family ran, and he said no to that, and so his father told him if he wasn't going to do the grocery stuff, like, he needed to find a job. And so Monet started painting, and it just didn't really work for him, because what he was painting at the time wasn't really what was in. And so he fought really hard, and he was broke a lot of his life, um, until he moved in with his aunt, and his aunt said, I'm okay with you painting, but you have to go to school. And so he went to the Academy, it's one of the art schools in France, it's just known as the Academy. Um, and he learned how to paint, and he ran into what I was talking about earlier, um, how he just didn't fit in. And so he decided to join the army, and he fought in the army for a little bit of time. And then he got typhoid fever, and his aunt fought him out of the army. And he went to go live with his dad, and so he was painting, and his dad was like, yeah, you really need to get a job. Because at this time, like, art is a career, but you're not really an artist unless you are painting what everyone else was painting. So he decided he moved out, he wasn't going to live with his dad, and so he was very insistent on doing what he wanted to do, and that was painting. And so his whole life, he never let anyone stop him. Which I thought was, it really gives more meaning to his paintings, because he's, he's so dedicated to doing it, and he's not going to let anyone stop him. It's also a lesson um, to, like, everybody else, that if everybody's against you going to art school or going into an art career of some kind to fight it, you know? Like, if that's something you really want to do, go for it. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some times in his life that, um, he was trying so hard to make it work, and he just didn't have the money, and because he was, he didn't have the money, and he had a family, um, he got worried, and occasionally him being so broke made him somewhat suicidal, but I think his art, and the idea of, well, if I kill myself now, I'm not gonna... I'm not gonna go anywhere. Which, like, that that shouldn't be the reason why you decide, like, I don't know how to preface this, just don't kill yourself, kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but also, like, no. there's gonna be down times in art careers where you might have to pick up a second job. And then, doesn't mean you have to give up your art career, it just means for the time being, you pick up a second job just yeah. to get you through to the next point or part of that of your life, I guess. <laughs> so, during this time living with his aunt, he um he was living in Paris close enough to the Louvre that he went to the Louvre on a regular basis and he thought it was really funny. He went to the Louvre to go paint like a lot of the artists at that time would, but instead of doing what you typically would, which was 
go and do studies of the paintings that are there, go and do master copies of the paintings that are there. He decided to go and look out the window of the Louvre and paint what he saw at the window. Um, I really thought that was funny to learn just because, like, it really goes with the Impressionist movement. He is doing, sorry, he's doing the opposite of what people expected you to do. And we find that a lot with the Impressionist movement. We're having artists focus on different parts of the human body to paint or painting things that are somewhat taboo or painting things that aren't considered traditionally pretty. And so I thought it was really funny to learn that he really always kind of turned away from the norm. So his life wasn't always easy. And we see towards the end of his life, he really starts to lose um, his sense of sight. He starts to go blind because he has cataracts. And his cataracts cause kind of this red-violet haze. Um, when you read biographies about him, they often describe it as that he was seeing ultraviolet colors, which... Um, that's definitely a strange description because you can't see ultraviolet light. And so it makes it seem like he was seeing things that, that like they didn't exist. Which makes sense in some of his final paintings because you start to see orbs and weird swirls in his paintings that because he's painting water lilies towards the end of his life, we've seen a lot of what he's painting before he starts painting these. And so the swirls just don't fit in. You can't imagine them being anywhere in real life. And this was the result of his cataracts and him going blind. Um, and it's actually... The reason why his paintings aren't completely abstract is because he was painting from a mix of memory and what he was seeing in front of him. And so we get the what he used to paint and we see elements of that, but we also see the elements of um, ultraviolet colors um, and just kind of strange shapes that you wouldn't normally see in one of his paintings. And that really gives his paintings, like, to know that information, it really gives a different light to what we're looking at towards the end of his life. And I then... think I think that's also really interesting because I'm gonna hit on like a few little fun facts later that you know later on um, like scientists and sometimes even like doctors will study paintings like this and be able to tell what sort of like seeing disabilities some of these artists may have had at some points in their lives. It's kind of interesting to see that. So it's kind of like an interesting fact to bring up with all of this. Yeah, it definitely is. I think that, um, just to know that, I mean, I have other facts about artists, well, I have one other fact about an artist at this time, but just to see the kind of stuff that a lot of artists are dealing with when they're painting these things, it's really interesting, especially to me with, like, I've always been, and I mean, I guess a lot of artists worry about this but 
I don't know if I'm more worried than the average human being or not, but um, I have pretty great vision, but I've always been told because both of my parents wear glasses and, um, and so does my brother, I've always been told that my vision is going to deteriorate as I grow older, which I mean, everyone's vision gets worse as they get older, but I'm always afraid that because I've had pretty good vision up till now, like, I'm always afraid something horrible is going to happen, and I'm going to end up going blind. So to see that there's so many artists that kind of overcome losing their vision or losing things yeah. that would help them do art. I think that's a fear all, all artists have, but yeah. it, it is, because I've definitely thought about that a lot too, like, what would happen if tomorrow I was blind? Or what would happen if I couldn't use my hands? Or what would happen? Like, I always think about that. Like, what would my steps be? But yeah, I had a friend in high school yeah. who, um, she woke up one morning and she started to see, like, a purple haze over everything that she was seeing. And, like, within a week, she couldn't see anything. And it ended up being, um... I don't remember what exactly happened, but I think it was just, like, a fluke. Um, she regained her vision within a few days, but it was definitely scary. And a wake-up call to just be kind of thankful for the fact that I have good vision and I can see what I'm doing. And then, I mean, working with the blind, I worked for a um, summer camp for visually impaired children this summer. And to work with those kids, some of them are, um, they're not blind, but you know that their vision isn't going to get any better. And so working with some of those kids, you kind of start to worry. And I mean, you worry about them. I know that um, there were a lot of them that were very art inclined. Um, they're very, they're very great children to work with. They're, I mean, they're really cool. But to know that some of them, like, what they want to do is art, and they're not always going to have vision to do, to do the art that they want to do is kind of, it makes you really thankful. And so I yeah. think that when I'm learning about these artists, it makes me really thankful to know that even though they faced, even though they faced these challenges, they really overcame them. Yeah, and that's something we could probably get into in the future of mm -hmm. artists who face certain disabilities and how they overcome that, which is also like that. There's a lot of artists like that that we could definitely get into in the future. Yeah, there are definitely a ton that are very um persistent, Yeah, I guess you could say, yeah. to do what they're going to do. So it is something we can definitely get into. Um, can we pause for a second? Mm -hmm. The girls yep. across the street. Okay, we had to pause for a moment to readjust, but we're back now, so Jamie, you can take it away and finish it off with your information and all of that. Yeah. So, Monet was also always very aware of the art world around him, mostly because he fought so long to be a part of it that he wanted to make sure people got recognized for their talent. And so, when Van Gogh started painting, Monet started to see these paintings that Van Gogh did, and he really enjoyed them. And he made a point 
to publicly say somewhere, and I'm not 100% sure where he said this, but I have heard this story a few times. Um, Monet said that Van Gogh was going to be the next big artist. And um, he also said that what Van Gogh was doing was so much different than everything else. Because Van Gogh was called an impressionist for a little bit of time. And Monet was like, he's not really an impressionist. He's doing something entirely different. And yes, it does connect, but I think it's very, like, it's very different than what we're doing. And I think it's going, he's going to be very successful with it. So, it's it's interesting because it's, it's Monet kind of... It's, like, really know. cool that he get, like he wanted to bring people up with him. And not just be like, screw you, and like just climb to the top. You know what I mean? Like, that's very commendable, I guess. Yeah. So, Sorry, I cut you off, but go ahead. Keep no, going. No, no, you're good. <laughs> um, so the next artist, Brittany, is going to talk about Van Gogh a little bit. So yeah. I thought that was a great way to kind of get into Van Gogh and kind of connect the two artists. Yeah, so I feel like a lot of people know about Van Gogh's life, so I didn't really want to get into that too much. Um, you know, like, I feel like that's pretty much common knowledge, even though even some people who aren't really heavily into the art world or anything like that. So I wanted to talk about his death for a little bit, um, because for a long time, people have been questioning whether his death was really a suicide or um, they're kind of putting it more into the realm of an accidental death. So I'm going to get into that a little bit. I'm going to start off with some of the issues with his death that kind of make us think a little bit whether it even makes sense that, that it would be a suicide. Um, if I forget anything, please chime in, Jamie. <laughs> um, so first... The big thing was, I guess, him getting shot in the stomach was a pretty big one that didn't make any sense. Also, the fact of where did he even get the gun and why couldn't it be found was a big issue. Um, the bullet didn't exit his body, so there had to have been a good bit of distance and it just didn't make sense for him to shoot himself without it exiting the body um so another issue that i thought was interesting um was he when he was talking to the police he went out of his way to say that he wounded himself and not to blame anybody else for it which i thought was very interesting that he really wanted he kind of took the blame for it like he kind of went a little too far to explain it, I guess. So, I'm gonna go into, with that aside, with some of the issues, I'm not really thinking, I guess another issue would be, I guess I'll get into that when I explain the whole step, like, story of it. So, that day, the day of his, though he didn't die that day, but the day he got wounded, he walked out of he lived in an inn right it was like kind of an inn it was more of a bed and 
breakfast, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just wanted to make sure time, I had that right. Yeah. At the time of Van Gogh, it was pretty regular for people to, like, go somewhere and ask if they had a room. So. Yeah, I think he lived it, in the upstairs of an inn. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that day, he walked out, um, like any other day, with all of his art supplies in hand, and he left. And then later on that day, he comes back wounded in his stomach, with no art supplies, no gun, like, none of that, and kind of moseys back into the inn. So that's kind of what other people saw, um, and I'll kind of get into what they think, what, think is what happened to him. I know it's kind of a little all over the place, but... Um, so, some background information. When he would go paint in the field or wherever he would go paint, these a group of, like, a pair of uh, teenage boys would come. Uh, mainly the little brother of one of the boys. I believe his name was Renee. Like, to play pranks on him and make him angry because he said it was very easy to get him angry and he really liked to get Van Gogh angry so that was just some background information and the older and his older brother Gaston um which I kind of cracked up a little bit because <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny um because he for it didn't seem like he was like the bully so it's kind of just funny to have that name and not be the one bullying uh Van Gogh <laughs> but um Um, taking a drink. Uh, so he, Gaston, had a pretty big interest in art and kind of was building a good relationship with Van Gogh, and Van Gogh kind of just put up with his little brother and was, like, just kind of going along with it and just putting up with him and his pranks and all of that. Um... So that's just some background information. So I'm going to go into how they think he probably died, which kind of makes more sense to me at least, and I don't know if it makes sense to everybody, but it's just with all the information, it just seems like this I is... Go I ahead. I definitely think it makes more sense to a lot of people who, like, if you're not... I had the debate with someone because we were also talking about Kurt Cobain. Because, I mean, every time that someone dies of suicide, or someone notable dies of suicide, there's really definitely, um, like, there's always a conspiracy theory. Yeah, so, yeah, that's also a pretty... We were talking about yeah. how Kurt Cobain died, and I was like, I really don't think, like... I don't know about him because he was kind of strange and who knows it was Kurt Cobain, but like I was reading up on Van Gogh's death and this is how he died and I don't think he did it. And so I was talking to my cousin and my aunt about it and they were like, yeah, it, but he was, he wasn't in the right state of mind. He might've done it. And it's just a coincidence that all of these things happened. And I was like, it's just too much to be a coincidence. Yeah. It's kind and of like to a point where it just, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. It just is too much. And I, I think, think there are a lot of people who are into art and are into Van Gogh because we just want to 
like, and I'm not saying that it's, like, because we're artists, we want to believe that he didn't commit suicide. I'm saying this because it really just doesn't make sense. Yeah, because there's, like, statements that he made earlier in his life that just doesn't, like... Yeah, it doesn't line up. Yeah. Like, uh, for example, it's stated, like, to his brother, he said this multiple times, that he really, like, he doesn't want to live, but he really was such a religious man that he wasn't going to kill himself. And he, he actually talked down to other people who did that, because he saw it as such a big sin to do so so he was really against that and was kind of just going to struggle throughout his life um so that's like a little piece of background information that kind of like yeah it doesn't completely rule it out that maybe he just could have but yeah there's like the issue of the gun i think is like the biggest issue with the whole thing when you agree like yeah. It's just, it's they couldn't find gun. it. And yeah, the... they couldn't find the gun, and he, like, that day, if you look into the people that he talked to that day, they all are, like, surpri- like they're not surprised, but they're surprised. Yeah. They're and the only, yeah, the about... only record of that gun was, or, like, information about that gun all led back to this little boy, Renee, and... Because it was so rare to have a gun, especially in that town at the time. You didn't. It was rare to see someone with like a personal like pistol at the time. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, there were three other gun owners in that town. Yeah. And the only other gun that he would have been able to get a hold of, which was found shortly after, um he was shot and they found out that it wasn't the weapon that he killed himself with um the inn owner the inn that he was staying in huh. um he owned a gun <laughs> yeah yeah that was horrible <laughs> <laughs> there was no pun there no pun intended uh, <laughs> sorry keep going the owner had a gun the owner of the inn had a gun however um it hadn't been fired. Like, when they went to look at yeah, it. Yeah, there was, like, no fired. residue or anything like that, I'm so sure. They ruled that gun out. And so they never found the weapon. Yeah, so. and uh, around this time, it was very, like, dressing up like a cowboy. It was very popular. And Renee had gone to a show and had gotten this costume that was all, like, it was all finished off with this actual pistol. And it's believed that Van Gogh went out that day and somehow uh, ran into them while they were playing with the gun and he accidentally got shot in the stomach. And he, he wanted, he didn't want them to get in trouble uh, or be or labeled as murderers, so he covered for them. Which... Which I find to be believable with the whole him going out of the way to say, I wounded myself, don't blame anybody else, I did it myself. You know what I mean? Like, that makes sense to me, and 
I think... I think I'm gonna also ask this question to everybody and to you, and then I'll also answer it. But does it change how we think of him as an artist in any way? I think it definitely does for me. Um, yeah. And about it being accidental, it depends on who you ask. Uh, there were people who actually think that Renee really didn't like Van Gogh. And there were actually a lot of people in the town who didn't like Van Gogh because he was strange and foreign and um, people with mental health issues at this time get a really bad stigma. Yeah. And so there was that on top of it. But it was said that Rene really didn't like Van Gogh and there were some really childish reasons why. But some people think that, like, the kid actually shot him. Like, on purpose. Possibly on purpose, and they're not sure, because obviously there's no real way to prove it. They, It's such a strange, it, like, it's such a mystery, because there's so many pieces that just are yeah. missing, or they don't fit. But to go back to your question, I definitely... It makes me think about his health more. And think about, like, was he actually as crazy as people said he was? Yeah. Or was he just thinking very differently at the time? Because, like, obviously there was definitely some kind of mental health issues there. The whole ear as a gift for a um, prostitute, right? Lover, which he ended up giving it to a... He gave it to a prostitute that he frequented. Um because he fell in love with her. And it wasn't- everybody thinks it was his whole ear, it was just his earlobe. Still crazy, but not as crazy. Yeah, it's so not I like he cut he, off his entire ear. Yeah, I think a lot of people, because he's this strange dude, it's very played up. Yeah. Which is sad, because he's a great artist, and playing up, like, the fact that he was not in the most stable mental state, it's kind of horrible. You wouldn't want to be known for the fact that you made great paintings, but you were crazy. So, yeah, I think I it's think also uh, this this story. Um, even though it's not like a hundred and ten percent proven, makes I think throughout history, ha like over the years as I learned about Van Gogh all through school and then through college, when this story came up. I liked Van Gogh, I liked his work, but everybody kind of seemed to put this, he was a crazy jerk, and like, twist on everything, like he wasn't, Yeah. and, but when you get this, you kind of start to think back to why he, like this gives me so much more respect for him, and also makes me want to, I guess, know more about what he really was like. And you can kind of see that a lot of him lashing out and doing these crazy things could have all stemmed from, yes, there was a, a mental part of that, a mental disorder or issue. That but people were horrible to him. Yeah, so, and there's also the guilt that his brother had to take care of him and there's a lot of, I feel like it's almost like a lot of guilt that he couldn't 
completely live on his own and be his own like yeah artist and you know make a living off of that there's a lot of pain there and this story you kind of see this really it's a sad way for him to leave this world but it was kind of this story almost I see his artwork in a much more beautiful way I guess because you don't see that part of him anymore that just doesn't seem to be true I think there's also artists get a horrible rep um we see a lot of artists because of their decisions they are known for not their art but what happened to them so I mean some people and a lot of people know Frida because of her art but she's also known for being an alcoholic known for being um she took on many lovers and so she's known for being kind of like I don't want to use this word but I have heard people kind of call her a whore and so she's known for that. You see Artivi Majanileski, and she's known for her history and her being raped a lot of times are the reasons why yeah. people know about her as an artist. And um, I've had people who can't connect or who can't disconnect the artist from their art. And so I have, I've talked to people who, like, Salvador Dali was known for not being the greatest dude. But he had great art. And so I know a lot of people who, because he was kind of an asshole, people are like, well, his art may be good, but it's also terrible because he was an asshole. Yeah. So it's also this other, there, it's also, I find it to be the other way around too, where I don't mean to bring this up, but I mean, mm-hmm. because he's a man, people look at the artwork more than him being a jerk. And yeah. it's, I feel like women especially throughout history and it, thankfully it's starting to change now that women get bashed for how they live their lives and not yeah. what they worked for and there's nothing wrong with how they live their life like it's like Frida that's her being a being her own person making her own decisions saying F you you know what I mean it's like I I think. And, like, the point that I'm trying to make with this is that, like, artists, and I don't want to say that it's just artists, but as an artist, I feel like I can say this. Artists get judged for such stupid shit. Yeah. People want to make them, and because it's not a popular career, people want to make the idea of being an artist, like, oh, well, if you're an artist, you're an arrogant asshole. Which some of them are, but... Yeah, it's definitely a thing that some artists are, but, like, there's always an arrogant asshole in the room. It's not just the artist. So, I think... Yeah, I, I completely agree. Being an artist is such a secluded career, in a way. And it's, like you get the whole tortured artist thing and there's so many tropes about artists that are just like oh well they're that way because they do art and it's yeah, not like you have to be a tortured person like a yeah, tortured and it's not yeah 
it's never, well, they're that way because they went through some really rough shit. Yeah. Van Gogh went through some really tough stuff. He never felt like he was accepted places. And the worst part of it is that even after his death, he's not accepted places because he's crazy or he wasn't in the right frame of mind or he's an asshole or there's so many things that so many artists get labeled that all they wanted to do all their life was be who they were and fit in. And they even get it after death that they still don't fit. Yeah, and I think... I think, yeah, as artists, we we see a Van Gogh and almost, like, even though I've never met him, there's, like, this want to have a friendship with him. Mm-hmm. And, like, just because I understand, like, living in this the world that we grew up now with there being more understanding, it's almost like you want to put your hand on his shoulder and say, it's okay, I get you, this is not... Like, this is really hard to deal with all of that on your own. And, like, kind of just, I don't know. It's just really sad. It's it's really a true thing, and I totally relate to that. Because you almost want to tell these artists that they struggled so hard in their life to be famous or to just finally be heard. Yeah. That you almost want to tell them. You almost want to be like, hey, you made it. And without you the art world wouldn't be the same. Just because I can imagine, like, us growing up, I know that I've always wanted to be an artist. I definitely went through a few phases where I was like, no, I want to do something else, but still be an artist. Mm -hmm. But I was always so focused on becoming an artist, and it's something that, because... And this might be a conversation to get into in another episode, but growing up wanting to be an artist, you always are worried that you're not going to make it. Yeah. Always worried because there's so many people who want to tell you that what you want to do as a career isn't a career. And so, um, you always want to, these artists who struggled so badly during the time that they were alive, you always kind of want to console them you want to be like you made it and you made the world a different place and so like that's that's definitely something that we're gonna have to get into in another episode oh yeah for sure for sure and I yeah and I feel like you and I relate a lot on that because we like we are very much like the moment we could pick up any sort of drawing utensil we were drawing and going at it yeah we were the kids to draw on the walls oh yes yes for sure but I do have some more interesting facts that people may, not all people may know about Van Gogh that I wanted to get into as we lead into our fun facts. (laughs) No, it's fine. It's a good one to have, especially after uh, thinking about Van Gogh. So um, I remember hearing this before, but I don't know if it's like common knowledge, but the, the, uh, year he was in the hospital he created 150 pieces not all of them were oil paintings because part of that part of that year or however long he spent in the hospital he had gotten his oil painting privileges taken away because he was eating the oil paints um which i don't know if it was necessarily because of the understanding that they are not good for you or if because they supplied the oil paints, they didn't want him wasting it while 
because he was eating it. I don't know, but definitely interesting. Um, some pieces, some famous pieces that he created while there, we know Starry Night, but some others are uh, Al Almond Blossom, which was a gift for his brother because he just had a newborn uh, son, so that was a gift for him, and Irises. Um, and another, one more fun fact about Van Gogh, or theory, was that a lot of his paintings have this very yellowy kind of look to them. They think uh, that's because he was drinking a lot of absinthe, and if you drink a lot of that, it gives everything this yellow haze, which Jamie knows a lot about absinthe an artist so not that you drank it but like you could go into that <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's funny to hear that about absinthe because we think of other artists who are known for drinking absinthe one of them being Salvador Dali which it's funny because you brought that up and then I was um I actually have a Salvador Dali painting at my room in my room back at the apartment but um I've always been a big fan of his work not him as a person he's I don't even know all the stories, but what I've heard, they're not good. Yeah. But his paintings also kind of have a yellowish, like, they feel very warm. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that's part of um, the absinthe thing. But absinthe is actually, it's no longer manufactured the same way that it was before. Because it was so potent that it was lethal. If you drank too much of it most like any alcohol but this was not like you didn't have to drink a lot for it to be lethal but it um it was very very potent and lethal and it was also a heavy hallucinogenic so these artists that were drinking absinthe were tripping balls like <laughs> it was just it was very strong and um that's one of the things it's known for is how strong it was. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, at least I feel like I hear about it a lot with artists, but it's known as a drink of the artist. Yeah. Um, it still is. It. Yeah. Because, because of its effect. And I think now it's kind of because we grow up knowing what these artists drank and where these artists frequented and stuff like that, we almost want to be like them because we hope that what they did will rub off on us and mm -hmm. we'll take part of their greatness. At least that's what makes sense to me. Um, to know that it's like historically known for being a drink for the artists um, definitely gives you some kind of curiosity about the drink. Yeah. And going off on a site, I have one more, because I mentioned this earlier. Um, I don't know, this is not, this is kind of a theory, but I saw it somewhere, so I think it's interesting to think about. But they think Rembrandt had a, uh, like a, like some sort of seeing disability where he could only see things in 2D. And that's why I feel like his uh, work has such a, I don't know if I would say strange, but like unique kind of feel to them, because I guess he was able to understand the world in a different way. 
I can't imagine how wacky that would feel to only yeah. be able to see things in 3D. Yeah, like, so he could just, I guess, yeah, there was just some, yeah. it's called something, and anybody who's watching this who knows what it's called or has more information on that, please let us know. But it's something I saw, and I think it's very interesting that he could only see things in, like, 2D, if that's true. But, yeah. That's definitely, that's something to look into. Yeah. Um... And then I have one more fact, and then I'll throw it back to Jamie. Um, this is, I don't know if this is really an, un, like, if a lot of people know this or not, but the first needed erasers, and I guess just erasers in general, were actually um, soft bread that artists would rip out of, like, the center of cooked, like, this cooked bread and use it as erasers. And then I also heard a story... I forget who told me this and um, what artist this was, but there was an artist, why am I forgetting this, but an artist that liked to go into, I guess these like courtroom meetings and draw the like draw uh, like people who were, I don't know what country this was in, so I can't even say like who would have been leading them, but would draw these like character characters of them and he eventually I think the judge told him he couldn't bring his drawing stuff in because he didn't like seeing that <laughs> so instead yeah. he brought in uh, bread and would sculpt the faces that he would want to draw later I don't know who that was and I'll have to try to figure that out but I, I heard yeah, that from somebody that. but and we'll have to bring that up in another episode yeah <laughs> If someone um, knows that, please let us know, because I know someone told me that before. I don't know if it's true, but I heard it from a professor somewhere. I don't know, but interesting story. It's funny, you never know with artists if it's true or not, because they're such bizarre people. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. there, are, there are some stories that are definitely proven, but there's also like you hear about these strange things and you're like, is that actually, like, can anyone actually get away with doing that? Yeah, because there's not, like, a record on it, so there's no way to yeah. tell if it's true or not, but... I mean... Interesting to tell, that's for sure. And talk um, about. <laughs> I actually recently found this out, and it's funny because this connects to your court thing. Um, Terry Crews, like, the actor, Terry Crews, he started as a um, courtroom sketch artist. Oh, wow. And he still likes to draw. And I thought that was crazy. He looks like... And I guess it's... I hate to feel like I'm profiling artists. Because I know that they can be anyone and they hide. But Terry Crews is such like a big buff like dude. You just don't think of him as ever really being like... Here I am sitting in a courtroom drawing stuff. So. And I don't know if you agree with me that like sometimes you just don't get that vibe from people like the art vibe from people you just don't get it off of them but oh yeah for sure and especially like i have because you kind of like based off of i hate to i'm not gonna really go too far into this on like people's like viewpoints on things too like i've met some pretty close-minded people that went to art school that i'm kind of shocked they went through the entirety of art school being so yeah. close-minded because um, you meet such out there people yeah, yeah, but story for another day. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I thought that one was fun. Terry Crews is... He, it, he Not that he's closed-minded. I don't know much about him. I wasn't trying to make a statement, but no, no, he's definitely not closed-minded. But um, I just thought that's a really cool thing to know that some of these people who you just don't expect are artists. Yeah, I think he also plays the flute too. So, like, he's just he's just a well-rounded dude. Um, another actor who's actually a pretty good artist is um. John Favreau. He's known, he's like the producer of a lot of Disney and mm. Disney movies. Yeah. He's also an actor. Um, he's the executive producer of The Mandalorian. But, oh, okay. Um, he can draw, he can cook, he's very well-rounded, but I thought it was cool to learn that he, he more than dabbles in the arts. Yeah. Um, and I think you find that with a lot of people who are, um, like singers and songwriters also dabble in that too. Like I think Bowie as well was like yeah. a painter for at least some point in his life. But uh, I feel like if you have that creative part of your mind really working well, like some people aren't very like aren't that creative, but some people really are. I feel like it's only natural to kind of yeah. be able to do multiple things with that. And then I'm actually going to get into, like, my actual facts that I have written out here. Oh, yeah. Perfect. So that I don't totally just spit out people who I know draw. Um, <laughs> so to go along with the um, kind of disabilities topic of this episode, um, Renoir, he's another known impressionist. He had horrible arthritis. Um, I think it said he had rheumatoid arthritis. But it's crazy to think of him. Uh, he's an amazing painter, and if you haven't seen his work, definitely look for it. But he is such an incredible painter, and you would never think of him being in so much pain while painting. Because you kind of imagine, like, being in a lot of pain while painting would make you not good at it but he was definitely really great at it and it's crazy to think that there was something holding him back and he just kind of powered through it because he was passionate about what he does so that was definitely something cool to find out um and i mean there's a lot of artists who if you don't know they were disabled that's kind of crazy how you didn't find out but um Frida Kahlo is another artist who, um, she had horrible luck throughout her life, and um, at some point I know that we are going to do an episode, or at least bring her up again, but um, she contracted polio when she was five, so growing up she had, um, her one leg was deformed because of it, and she had a bit of a limp, and then when she turned 18 she got in a horrible bus accident. And, um, she wasn't paralyzed, but it majorly disfigured the bottom half of her body to the point where she was always in pain, and it's actually why she has an art career, is because she was bedridden for three whole months, um, and she painted while she was bedridden. So, I'm Very not gonna get cool too lady. Hard. We'll have yeah, to give her her own, amazing. like, little spotlight, I feel like, yeah. in the future. 
I'm definitely, I'm not going to get too far into her because she definitely, she needs her own time. Yeah. She needs her own. We could talk about her for at least an hour. So yeah, we're not sure about her today. Um, so that's what I have on artists. But I also have facts about art supplies. Um, so I'll kick it off with this one. Paintbrushes are seen to be the earliest tool for art. Um, they think that cave paintings might have done been done with some kind of paintbrush-like tool, and that is why they're considered to be the oldest um, art tool, which I thought was really interesting because I kind of always think about it as being like the pencil, which is definitely that's a it's a relatively young invention, but um, I never thought about paintbrushes as being the oldest tool. They seem so modern. Yeah. Um, and then to continue on with paints, um, ultramarine, um, the color ultramarine, which you painted with oils at the time that this occurred, but ultramarine was known to be the as valuable as gold during the Renaissance, and it's actually why they used it mainly for paintings of um, godly things, so Madonna and Child, paintings of Christ, religious art, um, in general, they used a lot of ultramarine paint, but the reason that they used ultramarine paint to depict these types of things was because they thought because it was so rare and so valuable that it made it more holy or closer to God and there's actually a few colors that are known for being more holy or closer to God um I don't have the list of them in front of me right now so I can't name them but we could also go heavy into a art supplies podcast in the future but I also think that's like interesting because you can tell uh, throughout history, what artists were well off money-wise based on like that color of blue, you know? Yeah, it's always yeah. it's a very valuable color, and it's actually it's still a expensive color to get. Blue is a very to get that rich blue like ultramarine blue. It's um it's a more difficult color to get, and blues in general are more expensive when looking for colors. Yeah. I'm not sure if you found that, but I mean, I've talked to Bill about it. Yeah, I think, like, primary colors are just very hard. Yeah, because you can't general. really take them. Yeah. Like, they have to be pretty crisp, I guess. Yeah. So, that's what I have for... Actually, no, I have one more fact about paint. Excuse me. Um, so... Oil, you can't take oil paint on planes unless you get, like, special, um, special permission to. But you can't take oil paint on planes because of its flammability. Which brings me to another couple, um, unexpected flammable things in the art world. So, I learned this this year, actually, from a professor that I have, but... Um, vegetable oil is extremely combustible to the point where it can spontaneously combust. 
it is compacted in something. So we learned this through um, rags. When we print make, we use vegetable oil to kind of clean off our surfaces and um, thin out the ink to clean it up. And we found out that, well, me and Brittany is the we that I'm talking about. We were in this class together. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> we found out that if you crumple up a rag that is, like, soaked in vegetable oil and you leave it out in the open, it can catch fire. Um, and that's why when you're working with vegetable oil or any type of oil or paint thinner, um, there's special ways to get rid of paint thinner and oils and stuff like that when you're painting. And just in general, um, you're not really supposed to throw out oil. So that was a fun fact to, or that was something fun to find out and I thought it would be something fun to share. Yeah, for and sure. Another thing used when painting and in art that is flammable is turpentine. Turpentine is used as a paint thinner. It's a um, it's a natural spirit, and it is it can self ignite. I assume it's um it has to do with heat. Just like most oils, they have a smoke point. So I assume that turpent turpentine won't just like blow up on itself but in certain heat it can self-ignite yeah which is as artists like we all have to be careful with how we dispose of things it's also scary it's like this yeah. thing that i use on a regular basis might catch fire so and yeah. that's what i have for art supplies and now i have some facts about people um my first one is that Picasso was the top suspect in the um, theft of Mona Lisa in 1911. Um, or He wasn't the top suspect, but he was a top suspect with a few other well-known artists at that time. Um, his friend got arrested, and they were questioning his friend, and his friend was like, uh, no, if I did it, Picasso's involved as well. And it actually ended up getting Picasso arrested for stealing the Mona Lisa. Even though he didn't. Um, the Mona Lisa was stolen in 1911 by Joseph Gary Perret, but he got blamed for stealing it and arrested. Which I thought was funny. Um, another part of that story is that the Mona Lisa wasn't really a well-known painting until Picasso... Or, well, not, it didn't have as much to do with Picasso as that. They just had a really hard time finding the Mona Lisa after yeah. it was stolen in 1911. But it wasn't really a well-known painting until it got stolen for the, the, probably not the first time, but one of the first times. Yeah, I think or, that's, like, really interesting to, like, bring that up. Because I've always had, like, this, like, I like the painting, but there's also, like, what's the big deal about it? And it's really yeah. just because it was stolen. Not that it's not a good painting, that, and not that it's not a beautiful painting, but there's so much mystery behind it, it's almost that people wanted to keep the mystery after they after it was found. And yeah, and I have more stuff about the Mona Lisa. I really don't like to talk about Da Vinci much, mostly because I have strong opinions that I don't like to share on him. But 
Um, the Mona Lisa is thought to be one of many Mona Lisa paintings, and they think this because of the layers on the Mona Lisa. If and no one who listens to this, no one who will listen to this podcast, and I almost guarantee this, will ever be close enough to the Mona Lisa to really notice this. But there's um multiple layers of her head reworked, and like her hairline. Yeah, which they found through x-raying it, right? A lot of that. Like, she had a pearl necklace at some point, didn't she? Or some sort of... Yeah, she had a much different face at some point. Yeah. But they've actually found multiple copies of the Mona Lisa. And, like, multiple actual painted copies and not just reproductions. Yeah. Which also um, brings up another thing that I... I'm not 100% sure if this is true, but I have heard this multiple times. Um... They think that at some point, the Mona Lisa, like, was either replaced, and it was replaced with a painting that wasn't done by da Vinci. But they also think that, like, the Mona Lisa wasn't 100% done by da Vinci. Which wouldn't be strange at this time, because a lot of artists did work in workshops, but I'm almost positive da Vinci wasn't a big workshop artist. Yeah. I mean, it's also Um, possible he found a partly done painting of a artist and just picked it up and like was messing with it. I think yeah, it's yeah. also the reason which you'll find a lot of artists throughout history because of mainly because they can't afford more canvases that they paint on top of old yeah. paintings that they don't care for, which I mean is accurate for artists today too, especially being a broke college student. Yeah, but, I've actually yeah. had professors suggest that if we run into a yard sale somewhere and they have, like, paintings to go and, um, go and look at them. Not only for the paintings, but, like, for the frames and stuff. But I had a teacher say, well, I mean, if you're really having such a hard time getting canvases, and you're not just gonna make them, then you could always go to yard sales and try and see if you find any canvases and repaint over them. Which, I mean... I kind of have a problem with doing. I'm not. Yeah, I feel like the artist didn't give you permission to do that. (laughs) It just kind of feels wrong. But But it's not. It's not an uncommon thing. Um, Which also could also be what he was doing was that this is just a painting he carried around, just like as his study painting. Not that it was so important to him, but it was just to practice and, um just kind of always improve that it was just ever going to be done it was just kind of his experiment painting which yeah, and da could have been the case known, Da Vinci's known for being kind of a flake as well like he didn't finish things if he didn't want to and yeah. he kind of did whatever the hell he wanted <laughs> which is why I and I will just say this I don't like Da Vinci and I don't it's not that I don't like his art I just don't like his personality from what historians know which I didn't know the guy, obviously, so I guess it's kind of harsh for me to judge him on what historians have found out. I think but... it is frustrating that, like, some of his pieces, if not yeah, all of them, don't have a good lasting good. ability. It's yeah, just not, frustrating. Not forbid they make him a Ninja Turtle, at least be a good dude, I guess. <laughs> but, um... He was also left-handed. That was something I found out. Oh, yeah. Is that he's left- or it's thought that he was left-handed. Um, 
It's not entirely proven, but we think because of looking back at his notes, which are incredibly famous, some of the things he's famous for are because of his notes, but it's thought that because his notes are almost mirrored, they think he probably wrote with his left hand. I'm left-handed. Shout out to all the left-handed people out yeah, there. <laughs> they're pretty cool. Um, I'm ambidextrous, so I'm not... Well, that too. Like, yeah. that's... that's... Um, also very helpful to the, be able to do things with both hands. Yeah. I actually didn't find out I was ambidextrous until last year, like last spring semester. I was working on something in pastel and I just kind of switched hands and someone looked up at me and they were like, aren't you right-handed? And I was like, oh, yeah, I am. And they were like, you're using your left hand. And I was like, I didn't even notice. Sorry, dude. I do that sometimes, too. Not so much with, like, holding a pencil, because it's a little strange, like, with writing. Yeah. But, like, something that would that doesn't need, like, the same, like, I feel like the muscles and everything in my left hand are much more developed in that sort of way to control that while my right hand isn't. But, like, like scissors, and sometimes I'll switch off. But I'm not that good as to completely feel uncomfortable with that other hand. Yeah. I'm not I'm not entirely ambidextrous, but I am decent decently ambidextrous enough that I can color with my left hand. Yeah. Another um, thing to to test out. I know I'm going off on a little bit of a like going off the rails here, but to test it, if you can write with both of your hands, like write like take your name for example and write with both of your hands like obviously you would go backwards with your right hand or no not with your left hand and then go forwards but if that's a good way to tell that like you have like your you can be i guess not be it because you could probably train your brain into doing it anyway but you've got a good start at least if you could write with both hands at the same time yeah which i can do yeah and if you're ever really curious Put a pen between your toes and see if you can write with your feet. It's not as hard as you think. I can write with my feet, too. Um, total tangent, but definitely a fun thing to try. So. Yeah, yeah, it is. And if you can write with your feet, let us know, because I want to know if there's any other weirdos out there who can write with their feet. Shout out to all the weirdos. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I think I'll finish this list. But, um... Where the hell was I? Oh, sorry. I was left-handed. And another thing about the Renaissance, you find a lot of fun art facts about the Renaissance because it was such a strange time. But um, being an artist at that time wasn't considered a manly job. Um, it was a craftsman job, but much like other craftsmen jobs like carpenters and um tailors and jobs like that aren't considered manly and that's why they're kind of lower class jobs which i found insane when you think of um when i think of carpentry at least i think of that being as like that being a kind of more manly yeah. type of job i hate to i hate to think of it that way though because women can be just as great at anything Especially woodworking. Yeah. Um, but I guess, like, a, something that takes a lot of, like, muscle and yeah, hard work. Sure. Yeah. So, I found it kind of funny that 
of these jobs were considered not manly, but when you think about art at this time, there are very few females in the art world in general. Well, it's not that there are very few. There's just very few that are talked about. Yeah. So it's funny to think that it even started as being like a not so manly job and to think that even today women are less paid attention to in the art world. Yeah. Especially during the Renaissance where the only Renaissance painter that I know that was female was Artesimo Genileschi. There were there were a few like there in that kind of baroque kind of period that were very interesting yeah. that not that they have a lot of um like spotlight on them but there's definitely like a good bit that we could get into that are really yeah. cool and some that kind of just dropped off the face of the earth painting wise probably to have kids and start a family but you know it's yeah. it's definitely cool to talk about them because they uh, a female artists have a different way of going about artwork you can definitely see you know yeah. And a lot of times, female artists, um, their artwork has different subject matter because they go through the, they go through being a female. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we'll definitely, um, we'll definitely have a female art history episode, if not a female art history kind of subcategory of our yeah. podcast. Um. I know that I am, I'm super into feminist art, I'm super into female artists, um, some of my favorite artists are females. Um, yeah, so that would that. be definitely something really awesome to give them their own, yeah. you know, kind of category, like you said, yeah. Give them their own light, because we don't hear about them enough. I mean, me and Brittany both go to an art school and we've both taken a lot of art history classes and I can only name a few female artists that we really spent time on. Yeah, and I know the the art uh history professor we both had, they try like they try really hard to fit in a lot of awesome female artists and it's yeah. just hard with how little information was able to be I guess captured at that time. You know what I mean about yeah. them, but and I think another thing is that just like we were talking about earlier how artists get this kind of reputation for being like a certain way mm -hmm. a lot of female artists get the like get an even worse kind of reputation because they're doing this job that is so male dominated and it still is yeah. but also any little thing they do wrong, any kind of emotion that they show ends up being a bad thing. Which we can because, see a lot today, too. Like, yeah. Which has not gone away, which is sad, but I mean, it's on its way out, but it's slow. It, it's definitely horrible that a lot of female artists get judged for being emotional or judged for being um, like Frida Kahlo, a lot of female artists are judged for being too sexually active which I'm saying with huge air quotes because it is not, you can't judge them for that. That's yeah. their body will do what they want. But a lot of art, female artists get judged for talking.
talking about female issues and talking about uh, menstruation or trying to have children. And so there's there's a lot of art that comes from being a female that a man couldn't really exactly put their perspective on because they don't really go through it. So, yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about female artists more. And I yeah. know that we did have someone ask us to talk about a female artist, um, Artesimo Genileschi, yes, specifically. Yeah. Which I'm excited so, about. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into female artists. Yeah. But anyway, I think that's that's all we have, right? Yeah, and if there's any uh, interesting art history facts or artists that you would really like us to talk about, please uh, let us know on our Twitter and let us know on our Instagram. Yeah, and that goes for any topic that we talk about. If there's something you want to know more about or something that you think we should talk about, let us know. We'll definitely we'll look into whatever you want us to talk about. Um, obviously, we won't be able to cover everything just because, I mean, we're only two people. We can only talk about so much. Yeah. But also, we'll have to decide whether it's something that we feel passionate enough to talk about we don't want to talk about something that we just have very little interest in yeah so definitely let us know and we will try our best to throw it in here yeah and also if you wanted us to we could also mention you as well for giving us the idea for it Mm -hmm. which uh yeah which would be really awesome to hear what you guys would like to see and listen to us talk about yeah So, since that's all we have, just a reminder to go follow us on Instagram at artsy.barkey.gals, and to follow us on Twitter, um, it's at galsartsy on Twitter. We also have a Facebook, and we have a website, which will be linked in wherever you can find this episode. So, check out our sites, it's where we post the pictures that um, the images that we talk about in our episodes, and it's also where we'll let you know when we're posting next, and that kind of stuff, so definitely go check us out on there. Yeah, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you for our, uh, next episode.